We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, I'm so glad you're with us this week on Women Worth Knowing, and I'm Cheryl Broderson in studio with one of my favorite people, Jasmine Allnut. And we're talking (laughs) about some of our favorite people. Yes, we are. Some women worth knowing, as you know. That's why you're here listening. (laughs) That's right, because you want to know these women, too. So we started telling you this story Mm -hmm. last week um, that one of our listeners sent in, and we're fascinated um, with this story, and Jasmine's going to finish it because after this <laughs> short story, I'm going to go into Catherine Parr. Yes, and we're going to carry on with our uh, Tudor, our Tudor women. women. Yes, yes, Tudor women of the Reformation. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as you may recall, we were talking about the story of Dick and Lois Landis. It was sent in by uh, one of our listeners, Stephanie Good. So thank you for sending that in. Stephanie. It was very good, Stephanie Good. Yeah, good. As How if about she's that? never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Wow, what a new, fresh thing. Um, So as you may recall, uh, these guys were serving as the first Mennonite missionaries to Guatemala, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Like, wow, they were real real pioneers there. Uh, And they were living in a suburb of Guatemala City called La Brigada. I believe that's where we left off. So Cheryl kind of left off. There was a part where uh, Dick was able to get water for the community, right, because their wells had run dry. And... uh, Actually, Stephanie quoted, there's a Mennonite uh, missions historian, I think, this gal who summed all of this up and said, a small congregation had grown in Brigada, a community on the edge of Guatemala City where Richard Landis won the confidence of the people by helping them get a water supply after their wells went dry. And I kind of like how that was phrased because it just shows um, that he was using a practical bridge to open doors and connect with the people in order to share the gospel, right? And and we see that a lot, don't we? That those practical things are what uh, often causes people to trust and to, you know, be more inviting and open uh, for the Lord to move and work. So it's kind of (laughs) neat. So clearly there were a lot of practical needs. Uh, They were dealing with a a lot of poverty in the area area that they were in. And they had a lot of adjustments to make because of that. And Lois kind of highlights some of those things in their story, that just a different perspective on survival, than they were accustomed to. For example, um, she talks about uh, the neighbor's maid that she was ministering to and trying to help out. Uh, This gal was about 20 years and unmarried, but she uh, made sure, (laughs) so Lois put it, she made sure she got pregnant and had a baby, uh, and she ended up having a boy thinking, oh, good, now I'll have somebody to take care of me when he gets older. So a very different perspective on the purpose of children, like, oh, I just need this, you know, in case there's not a man for me later on, uh, you know, he he might abandon me, I'll have my child. It's just, you know, it's sad to have to think that way, but that was the perspective they were were working with. Um, Another time, there was a really sweet unmarried couple with two boys that was coming to their church, and the woman said she didn't want to marry her boyfriend because she said, well, after you get married, your husband will beat you. Mm. So that was the other. I know mm-hmm. it's so sad, but that was just another example of, mm-hmm. wow, this is the expectation here is that we're going to be alone and abandoned. Mm-hmm. And so it's neat because uh, we don't have the full story of what happened there. But uh, in the end, the Lord apparently did a work in their lives because eventually Dick was able to officiate their marriage ceremony. Wow. So they got married. And I have no doubt that Dick and Lois's marriage was an example to them. Like, oh, not yes. every husband will beat their wives. That's right. And knowing Jesus makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the Lord was definitely at work, but it was not without difficulty. Um, 
Lois dealt with a lot of loneliness. A lot of missionaries do. Um, and it's kind of neat to hear that from somebody who's been out more recently. So it just shows like this is just, you know, raw. This is how it is sometimes out there. She contracted hepatitis and had to go to the hospital. Uh, Dick had a lot of issues with parasites. Um, and so, you know, they had to like change their eating habits. They couldn't eat lettuce. Sometimes maybe I for those of you reading traveled. That, they had to re eat cabbage. Yes, cabbage instead. Who knew? I didn't know cabbage was... More, safer. Yeah, sa yeah. who knew? So that's safer, folks. For their, So if you ever go out <laughs> to certain countries, watch out because there's different amoeba in different countries that you're not used to. <laughs> and so um, raising small children in that area also without, you know, American, in, uh, American conveniences, that war on Lois sometimes, just the day-to-day -day living. Um, one time she said uh, she had to go to the local market. It was in San Pedro Carcha, all right? And that meant she had to go bargain over prices. And she had just gotten to a point where she just couldn't do it. She wanted to just go to the grocery store and buy things and go home and not have to haggle and barter. And so she said she just got so overwhelmed, she just started crying, saying, I'm tired of it. I can't. And so <laughs> Dick had to go for her. And so, like I said, it's just those little things sometimes that and don't of you daily love that she's life. real? She's just honest. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. that's how it is. We tend to, you know, even sometimes in our stories, we don't mean to, but we glamorize yes. because that's what the biographers did. Yeah. Gloss and they over. didn't tell you the hard parts mm -hmm. of, of missionary work. So mm -hmm. sometimes um, you're made to think, oh, their life wasn't that bad or, <sighs> totally. you know, my life is so hard. Yeah. And they then cruised. When you, Yes. Yeah. I love the realism. Yes, definitely. And it's just those little things, isn't it? Sometimes mm -hmm. we feel like, oh, I'm not a good Christian because— I didn't uh, want to go to the market. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Eggle. Some silly little thing, yes. right? Oh, I'm so—but, hey, that's life. That's just the daily—it's the daily things sometimes that are the most challenging. But I love how Stephanie even talked about this. She kind of commented and said, although they, these may seem like small sacrifices to make, they're part of the daily process of dying to self that all true disciples of Jesus take on in their lives. Excellent. Isn't that well said? Mm -hmm. So I love well that. Well said. So um, one of the other sacrifices they made actually during that season was to send their sons to boarding school in Honduras. Um, homeschooling was not a thing back then. And you see that if you read a lot of the older missionary biographies. Isabel Kuhn. Isabel, exactly. That's who I thought mm -hmm. of too. So right, that happened a lot where it just wasn't a thing. And so um, that's what a lot of them had to do, a, very, a real challenge to send your kids off and stuff like that. Um, Dick and Lois also had to be aware of um, thieves in their community. That was a big deal. People were breaking in and stealing stuff. Um, but she said it was so prevalent, they almost kind of got used to it. One time she said she, in the morning, she looked out her bedroom window and saw a man jump their fence and take the milk off their front porch. It was like, okay, well, this is life. No milk today. <laughs> yeah, no milk today. Um, there was also some political unrest they were dealing with at that time. So this is like the late 60s when mm -hmm. they were over there. And uh, at one point, there were no flights landing in Guatemala City because she said the U.S. ambassador had either been killed or kidnapped. And then uh, around that time, also, um, the German ambassador was murdered. And so mm -hmm. there was, uh, at that point, like a 9 p.m. curfew mm -hmm. on the whole city. And... Again, a lot of unrest. And so one time she even remembered somebody put a bomb in their telephone box up the street. And when the bomb went off, it like, you know, shook everything in the house. <laughs> but she said, I just love how understated she is. Uh, Lois said, stuff like that happened. It's not that you expected it, but it's just the way they live around here. In the meantime, we tell them about Jesus. Wow. Said, Let's just not lose sight of the main yes, thing here. I, so I just good. love the simplicity. Yes, <laughs> so good. Staying focused. So in August of 1972, they felt God calling them back to America after six years total in Central America. And Dick became a pastor of a church in Ohio. But Lois said they just had too much uh, 
like missionary blood in their veins and kind of just that church planting feel like we want to go and just groundbreak, even if it's here in the States, can we go somewhere new where there isn't a church already? And so they ended up ultimately, they had a few options and they ended up going to New Jersey. And that was really a step of faith for them because they didn't know a single soul and they really didn't even have full funding for um, that endeavor because apparently when Dick told the missions board how much their rent would be. One of the guys said, well, we want to do mission work, but I'm not sure we want to do it that bad. So, <laughs> wow. I know. Um, so it's not really clear how they ended up getting support, but the Lord just provided. And they did have um, at least prayer support from that church. And so um, this is how the missions publication summed up that time, that period of time for them. In 1977, Richard and Lois Landis, former missionaries to Guatemala, were sent to plant a church in Clementon, New Jersey, a rapidly growing community southeast of Philadelphia. Except for the owner of their house and the principal of their son's schools, they knew nobody in town. Witnessing from door to door, talking to shoppers in the mall, and eating out as a means of making contacts, wow. they found people eager for friendly conversation, and before long, a group was meeting in their home for Sunday evening Bible study. One church elder said, Dick's teaching was like that of the Apostle Paul. He never asked us to do something he didn't demonstrate in his own life. So what a neat what a you know, noble. opportunity. Yeah, and witness. And just, yes. I love that they just went and became regulars and got yes. to know people and yes. naturally— as we would say today, organically, the mm -hmm. Lord began to work. So they, it was kind of cool. They went and kind of surveyed the community. What would you want in a church? And people, most people just said uh, a f emphasis on family and parenting. So they're like, okay, well, we'll just go from there. So they started, like I said, in their home. And uh, when that got too big, they rented out a local motel. Then they moved to an elementary school for a year and a half. And then they found a property and used a two-car garage as their chapel. So it was just, you know, church in a, in a garage, basically. And then when they outgrew that spot, they were able to get um, an old um, Veterans of Foreign War building across the street. And that's where Word Fellowship Church is today. So that's kind of neat. There's still ongoing fruit from their ministry. So uh, they were in New Jersey for 21 years. And Dick was pastoring that church for 15 of those years. And Lois tells stories about how they were raising up younger couples to kind of take on the work. Very wise. You know, my dad Absolutely. always says, push ministry down yeah. <laughs> to other people. And uh, leading people in the community to Christ. There's a couple stories about uh, people that they led to the Lord. And uh, they just walked boldly through open doors. And uh, Lois talks about how Dick has just always been quite an evangelist. One time she said he was just talking to the receptionist at the doctor's office. And before they hung up, he just said, can I ask you a personal question? Who is Jesus to you? Like, you know, just <laughs> taking every opportunity. So uh, they both were just very um, missions-minded that way, wherever they were. And so uh, Dick became a bishop overseer, served with the Mennonite, Mennonite Missions Board, and he and Lois were able to travel and connect with their missionaries around the world. And then they felt called to church planting one more time in 1998. And they went and did that in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Wow. I think that's a famous Amish community. I feel mm -hmm. like I've been there before maybe. Um, but I mean, they weren't ministering to the Amish people, but it was just, I know it's famous for that Lancaster. So they met originally in someone's uh, basement and then they had uh, 30 people. So they moved to a, an auditorium stage at the local middle school. And then as the church grew, they just kept moving around till they bought an old chicken hatchery and that became Living Hope Community Church, which is another uh, ministry that's still going strong. And so just so neat to see their legacy still going on today. Um, once Dick turned 70, uh, he and Lois felt like it was time to step down and just kind of sub in once in a while. And then their son, Carl, 
uh, he had become a pastor. He was pastoring Mount Joy Mennonite Church and asked them to come alongside him. So that's where they've been for the past probably eight or nine years now. And they've been able to visit Guatemala and Costa Rica again. I mean, it's just neat. They've never stopped serving. And so— And they're in their 70s now. Yes. That's amazing. So looking back, Lois says, we were a little crazy, weren't we? A little brave. (laughs) The Lord guided us and gave us the unction and the power to be brave. I like that. And Stephanie kind of sums it all up and says, the Lord's work in Dick and Lois's life shows that not only in the churches they have planted, but that they have both been formed by his spirit. Lois, I have noticed over the years as a woman with such a gentle, quiet spirit, as 1 Peter says, It's been a privilege to follow in their footsteps and those of many other Mennonites throughout the centuries who have represented Christ all over the world. So um, just such a neat legacy and testimony from Stephanie. She's part of their son's church, actually. That's how she got to know them. And I love this. And, you know, Stephanie kind of took our challenge. Like, if you have a woman worth knowing. And then she asked Lois her story. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're out there and you're listening. And there's somebody that you think, wow, they're such a great exemplar. I like this person. Ask them their story. Yes. And you might have something to bring back to us. Yeah. And it's so good to ask somebody, what's your story? Mm-hmm. You, you find out so much. Nobody is, what did C.S. Lewis, you have never met an ordinary person. <laughs> Nobody's ordinary. It's so true. Extra- Especially true. when you come to Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ordinary people with an extraordinary God. And it's pretty remarkable what And he does. speaking of extraordinary people. Oh, yes. Nice I, transition. I want to talk about the sixth Wife of Henry VIII. Six. Number oh six, Catherine Parr. <laughs> yes. So we're going back to the 1500s now. Yes. And Catherine was born in August of 1512. Mm. She was the eldest child of Sir Thomas Parr, who actually um, was knighted uh, after, Catherine, after Catherine was born. He was lord of the manor of Kindle in Westmoreland. So you know where Kindle is? Oh, yes, Kendall. That's like near where Keswick is and stuff. Right. It's a gateway to the Lake District. Yes, Lake District. So he had all that area he was over. Um, So he was over all of – he became the sheriff of that later. Hmm. So he was over like the Lake District and some of the Yorkshire Dales. Beautiful area. So that would include, you know, Grossmere and Windermere and Mm -hmm, Keswick and, mm -hmm. and of course, Kendall being the gateway. Um, Catherine's mother was an heiress on her own right. And the daughter of Sir Thomas Green. And her father was a direct descendant of King Edward III. So the Pars had many knights in their lineage. Um, Catherine also had a younger brother, William, and a sister, Anne. Um, Even though they owned this um, huge manor um, in Kindle in Westmoreland, it's believed, though, that Catherine herself was born at Blackfriars, their house at Blackfriars in London. It's in London, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because uh, Sir Thomas Parr was part of Henry VIII's court and actually a really good friend of Henry VIII. Now, this mm. is interesting. Oh, I'm sure. And he was given, in. as I said, the position of Sheriff of Northampton, Northamptonshire, <laughs> and Master of the Wards and Controller of the King and the Lord of Kindle. Uh, Catherine's mother, though, at the time of Catherine's birth, was serving as uh, a lady-in-waiting to Catherine Mm. of Aragon. And she was actually very close friends with Catherine of Aragon. Henry's first wife. Henry's first wife. Isn't that interesting? So much so, so close was their friendship, that Catherine Parr was named Catherine after Catherine of Aragon. Oh, wow. Isn't that crazy? Oh, that's so weird. That and Henry's they're both wives? sixth oh. wife, it was named after his 
first wife. Oh, that's weird. Tell me that's not ironic. Oh, that is. So it is um, thought that Henry VIII favored Sir Thomas because Henry desperately needed allies in the north to help keep the peace of the country. Mm. Catherine's parents were Catholic and were dedicated loyalists to the king and believed that the king was in his position by divine appointment. Oh, the divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a very common belief. Mm -hmm. So Catherine's parents, though, were also very progressive. Um, Her father believed in having all three of his children, Catherine, William, and her younger sister Anne, all educated. Hmm. Um, Catherine was an avid learner, Hmm. and she spoke French, Latin, and Italian. And when she did become queen, she was teaching herself Spanish. Wow. So she had this propensity for languages, loved translation, Hmm. and was an avid reader. Um, She was just uh, pretty much anything that she set her hand to, she just excelled, except for embroidery. She hated (laughs) Domestic chores. That's so funny. That there's this rumor, and they don't know if it's true or not true, that she just hated anything domestic. Oh, that's hilarious. Did she actually translate any works herself then? Okay. We're going to ah. get to that. Oh. Yes. So Catherine's father died when she was young, and her mother had many suitors, but she refused to marry a second time. She didn't want to jeopardize her wealth mm, or smart. even the upbringing of her children. They were her priority, and she sought to make good and advantageous um, alliances, Mm, marriage alliances for each one of them. So in 1529, at the age of 17, Catherine was married to Sir Edward Burrow. You spell it B-U-R-G-H, but it's pronounced Burrow. Typical It's like Edinburgh. Yeah, Yeah, Edinburgh. Yes. But it was said that Edward was sickly from the very beginning of the marriage. Others thought that maybe he was not interested in women. Mm, um, they were married for four then. years, and Catherine never became pregnant. Mm. He was the younger brother, and as such, when she first married him, did not have any prospects because his brother, his older brother, would inherit everything, but his older brother was also sickly and died. Wow. So that he became um, awarded the Justice of the Peace, the Steward of the Manor of Curtin in Lindsay, mm. um, and he, had he not died early on after four years of marriage, he would have become the Baron Burrow. Oh, interesting. But he never did wow. because he died. So Catherine was a widow at 21 years old. Gosh, so young. She's very uh, young. She goes to uh, be a companion to one of her aunts. Mm-hmm. And there at the house, she meets John Neville, who was the third Baron of Latimer. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is hard because there's also at the same time, there's a, what do you call it, a preacher, a bishop named Latimer. Oh, yeah, Hugh Latimer. Hugh yep. Latimer. Latimer and, Ridley. and they're mm-hmm. contemporaries of each other oh, gosh. in some ways. But this is Baron Latimer, <laughs> and that's how we'll distinguish it. Now, he's in his uh, mid to late 40s, and he had already been married twice, and he had two children, John and Margaret. Um, but Catherine readily accepted his marriage proposal and truly, truly loved Baron Latimer. Wow. Um, she also became Lady Catherine and joined the gentry uh, when she married him and lived in his castle, Snap Castle, in North Yorkshire. You can look at Snap Castle Ooh. still and see it was, like, gorgeous. Is it a ruin now or is it still 
intact? I can't remember. I just remember seeing like sketches of it. Like, wow. So Latimer, unlike Catherine's father and mother, was uh, was even more of a devout Catholic. I mean, they were Mm. Catholics, but they put the king first. Sure. But Latimer did not agree with the annulment of Henry uh, VIII to Catherine of Aragon. Yeah. And he opposed that annulment. So at this point, he's not really sure of his alliances. Mm -hmm. But in October of 1536, these Catholic radicals who were angry with King Henry stormed Snap Castle and demanded that Baron Latimer join their forces against King Henry. So they wanted him to be part of this army. Yeah. But he wasn't quite willing to do that. (sighs) To go that far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, They also wanted him to renew, to go to London and renew the bonds between England and the Pope. So they said, you know, like, you've got a couple choices. You can talk Henry out of this divorce Mm -hmm. and, you know, do whatever it does to please the Pope because we want to be a Catholic country. Because remember, England was absolutely 100% Catholic. Yes. Yeah. Until— the yeah. divorce yeah. from Catherine of Aragon. The act of supremacy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Henry was still a Catholic mentally, even though he created the Church of England. Mm-hmm. It was still very Catholic. And, and that's going to come up in this, uh, too, a lot. Mm-hmm. So Latimer was then taken captive in October of 1536 and held till April of 1537. So during that time, Catherine was held prisoner with Margaret and John, his two children, at Snap Castle. And, you know, never sure of what what might happen next. So it wasn't like they had all the conveniences of, you know, being gentry in this castle. Yeah, very stressful. Because there were the the rebels had taken the castle. And so she was, you know, held there against her. um, Against her will. Well, mm -hmm. and the uprising became known as the Pilgrimage of Grace. Does that sound like a Pilgrimage of Grace at all? Wow. Mm. (laughs) A little misnomer there. Yes, yes. (laughs) The rebels vandalized Snape. I don't know if it's Snape or Snap. I'm calling it Snap Castle. And it sent sounds a, cute. And sent a message to Latimer uh, because he'd gone to London by this time that if he did not return immediately, the rebels would kill Catherine and his children. Oh, my gosh. So Latimer was able to come back, talk the Catholic rebels down, but the whole ordeal took a toll on Latimer, Catherine, John, and Margaret. Oh, I bet. Meanwhile, Baron Latimer was in trouble with both the Catholics and the Protestants. So Henry and Cromwell, they heard the reports or heard reports coming from the North that Latimer had actually sided with the Catholics. And so Mm -hmm. Henry and Cromwell were talking about bringing up charges against him for treason uh, where he would be hung, forfeit all his holdings, including Snap Castle. Henry wanted Latimer to prove his loyalty to the to the crown by condemning one of the leading um, Catholic leaders, Robert Ask. So was he? He's trying to try to just stay middle ground. He's and trying they won't to stay him, middle right? ground. Yeah. Right. Okay. You have because, to take a position. Right? Uh, and, okay. tr- and at this point too, the Catholic Church was not really distinguished, like you said, from the Anglican mm, Church. Yeah, it's all meshed. It was meshed, and especially because. Um, nobody knew exactly what Henry believed. Totally. I mean, he wasn't a Protestant. He wasn't. There was no Anglican Church at this point. It was right. just starting. And the only thing they knew is that Henry was the head of the church and not the Pope. Yes. Now that's kind of hard to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. wait, the Pope's out and the King's in, and where's the Scripture? You know, supporting that. Yeah. So everyone in the country is pretty confused. Yes. At this point, Latimer also is 
confused. But if the king wants him to uh, submit to Henry's idea of clemency and condemn Robert Ask, he agrees. Hmm. Um, meanwhile, William Parr, Catherine's brother, was now in the court of Henry VIII, as was her uncle Parr, or her uncle William Parr. So obviously the son was named after the uncle. Yes. And her her uncle was the first baron of Horton. And so they both fought valiantly against the Catholic rebellion, and that's how they got King Henry VIII's favor. Mm. And then they turned and intervened with the king to save Latimer's life. And although Latimer was spared, he was held in suspicion by the crown for the rest of his life. And so he was always trying to prove his loyalties. And Latimer and Catherine, they didn't feel so great about living in the north. They felt very insecure Mm. Uh, because of what had happened at uh, Snap Castle. So they moved to London and lived in London for the next seven years Mm. or until Latimer's. um, To be near Henry, kind of? mm, Well, to prove loyalty. To prove their loyalty. And also it was safer. London had more security. You didn't have roving bands Mm. of rebels that Mm. were going to hurt you. Now, it seems that it was somewhere during this time that Catherine became totally disillusioned with the the Catholic faith (laughs) and begin to embrace. uh, She came across some writings. uh, One, believe it or not, was Margaret Navarre. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. My goodness, that Mm -hmm. lady. (laughs) Right. And some of the other uh, writings, uh, she got a Tyndale Bible and Mm. started to read it avidly. Mm. And she wrote this about that time. I began to understand justice, righteousness, of God as that by which the just lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. Hmm. And this sentence, the just or righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, seemed to be um, possible just a passive justice with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, the just lives by faith. This straight way made me feel as reborn as though I had entered by open gates into paradise itself. Mm. So this is what happened towards the end of her marriage. Very much like Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. With Latimer. So in London, Catherine's life was quite different. She had been a country girl for the most part. And now as she's down in London and her brother is in the court, and then her sister Anne, her sister Anne would later, she married the um, Lord of Pembroke, and she would then become a lady-in-waiting for Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. (laughs) So Catherine is part of the court. You know, at least they weren't in the court, but they were were able to associate with many of the people in the court. In the aristocracy, Mm -hmm. in the nobility. And she began to meet Christians in the nobility and to forge really close friendships with a lot of the nobility. But she also loved fashion, jewelry, (laughs) and Protestantism. And this became her conversation. She loved to talk about the Lord, loved to talk about scripture, but she also loved jewelry and she loved clothes because it was so different than from her country life, Mm -hmm. which none of that really mattered. There was nobody to dress up for. And so now that she's in London, all of those things become very important to her. Now, in the winter of 1542, uh, Baron Latimer fell ill Mm. and Catherine took care of him. Um, nursed him, and her virtue in nursing her husband and loving Latimer is legendary. Wow. In his will, Latimer named Catherine as guardian of his um, 
estate and all that he owned, as well as his daughter, until Margaret, his daughter, came of age. I don't know if he had lost his son, John, by this time, Hmm. because usually it would all go to John, but um, Catherine is to watch over Margaret until she can come into her inheritance. He Hmm. also gave Catherine the manor of Stowe House, uh, which also you can see, and Hmm. it is, now that I saw a picture of, and it is it is Lovely. nice. Oh, it's great. huge. It was huge. So, and other properties and an allotment of 30 pounds a year, which at that oh. time was a goodly amount, not a great amount, right. but enough to keep her clothed and living in London and talking about oh, Protestantism. Okay. Yeah. How about that? Because Protestantism was this new movement in mm-hmm. Germany that was gaining a lot of popularity. And so mm-hmm. it was the talk of London about Protestantism. Also, there was a bishop, and we'll talk more about him um, next session, named Gardiner, who wanted to keep Protestantism out of England mm-hmm. and out of London and mm-hmm. went on a crusade against it. So um, Catherine did not want to go back to the north due to the unrest and the Catholic rebels, especially as she does not have her husband at this point. She does not want to go back. So I think that's a good place to end it. I hope I've, you know, gotten everybody's curiosity around. definitely. Because we're going to come back with part two of Catherine Parr next week. I hope you'll tune in. Yeah. Because there's so much more. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, whoa, she's on her own now. What's going to happen? She just got saved, really. Right. Wow. She's saved. She's a young widow, (laughs) and she's living in London. What will happen next? (laughs) Okay, thank you for joining us again um, on this edition of Women Worth Knowing. And again, we want to hear your stories. We started this session with a story by Stephanie Good about uh, her pastor's Mother. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Lois Landis. Yes, yeah. which is excellent. And we want to hear more of those stories. And mm-hmm. we we actually do have some to sift through that we're really excited about. Yes, there is a list. Don't worry, folks. If you've written in, we have been collecting those. Mm-hmm. And we're already researching some of these other people. But mm-hmm. it does – it takes me four to eight hours for every person that we do. Yeah. So – and I know Jasmine's the same. So yeah, it takes a lot of work. So yes. if it's taking time, it's because we're working on it. We're getting we're there. Don't worry. Don't – yeah, stay but with us. We've got a lot of years ahead. <laughs> so for this edition of Women Worth Knowing, thank you, and we'll see you – next week. Bye-bye. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.